We're in a series titled Carols, where we're talking about popular Christmas carols. And last week we talked about uh, Oh Holy Night, and Ken did a great job talking about that and sharing a personal story about how you can have hope and faith in Jesus all the time. So thank you for that, Ken, blessing us with that. Um, and this week, the, the song that we're going to cover uh, is, is one of my truly one of my favorites. And the reason we're doing this series is so often these just become songs that we sing around this time of year. If we're being completely honest, half the time they're just vibing songs, right? You put them on the background while you're cooking in the kitchen and you don't really think of the theological implications or the truths that they're talking about God when you're hearing these songs. They just become another part of the noise. And our goal in this series is to try to take the noise associated with these songs out and kind of hear the truths that are written into these songs. And believe it or not, all these carols we're covering are actually grounded in Scripture. So each week we're going into the Scripture and what influences those particular songs. This week for week two, we're doing the song, Come, O Ye Faithful. Now, you guys have heard this song many, many, many times, but some information you may not recognize is this song is hundreds of years old. It was written in Latin in the very beginning when it fir- they first came around, and it was called Adeste Fidelis. Adeste Fidelis. That's what the song was originally called in Latin. And then it was translated into English around the 1800s. And when it was translated to English, that's the version that you're the most familiar with. It was translated in the 18th century by a hymnist. And the song has been sung for hundreds of years since then, over and over again. What's so impressive and amazing about this song is it's been adapted to different cultures around the world. The song has been taken, they've taken pieces out, they've added pieces to it. They've done different things with this song associated with the culture that it's being sung into. The song has, has, over the past hundred years, built the faith of so many all across the world. And O Come All Ye Faithful, the chorus reads, O Come All Ye Faithful, Joyful and Triumphant. And it's a call to worship Christ. It's a call to worship the Messiah that was born to reconcile the world to the Father. And it's a call to humble ourselves before him, but not forgetting the victory that we have in him. So as we begin to sing this song, and we're going we're gonna to sing, I want you guys to stay seated, and the uh, band and the music team is going to sing this song. You can sing in your seats. I want you to think of it not as the background music to your Apple or Spotify playlist, I want you to hear the words that are, being, that are being sung and hear the words that you're singing coming out of your mouth and actually lean into those a little bit. And we are going to cover a little bit more about this hymn in just a second. So, Kendra, will you lead us in O Come, All Ye Faithful? Oh, come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore 
fail to realize is that this this core or this song was actually written around the idea of the shepherds this time uh, this time we're picking up right after Ken left off last week on O Holy Night so this is the shepherds and when they hear and get the information from the angels and again the chorus we sing over and over again come o come all ye faithful joyful and triumphant and the thing we often don't recognize is that when the shepherds heard the call and the shepherds themselves would not consider themselves to be people that were joyful or triumphant. 
I mean, you got to think at this point, Israel had been conquered for hundreds of years. Israel had actually fallen numerous, numerous times after the time of Solomon, one kingdom to another, and they were constantly oppressed, sometimes in slavery. Sure, they had a chance to go back, and Nehemiah built the wall, and they tried to rebuild the temple, never reaching the splendor that Solomon, that David began to acquire and that Solomon maintained. After that, it was a complete and total mess of oppression. Now, the thing here is uh, we got to ask the question, why would the author write it in such a way to say we're, they're joyful and triumphant? If Israel didn't feel joyful and triumphant, and I'm certain that the shepherds, when they heard it, didn't feel joyful and triumphant, why on earth would the hymnist who begins writing it in Latin starts to write that the people that are singing this are joyful and triumphant? We're going to look at that today and figure out what in the story caused the author to write it that way. So if you're ready, say, I'm ready. You ready? All right. We're picking the story up immediately after the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, now the thing we got to remember, Luke thoroughly investigated all these things. There's some scholars that believe this is actually Luke interviewing Mary, and he's getting the information from Mary how all of this happened. And he's interviewing people around the region. And he may have even interviewed the shepherds themselves to get this part of the story. What we know is that Luke thoroughly investigated all of these things for the Greek aristocrat Theophilus that he's writing for. He didn't really intend for his gospel to become the gospel or a gospel proclaiming the good news. It was simply for a leader that had his faith shaken a little bit. So he's writing these things, and he says, I'm writing these things so that you may know, essentially, that your faith is grounded in truth. So that's the context we're reading in. In Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, if you guys have your Bibles, I encourage you to pop them open. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, immediately after the birth of Christ. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. They were terrified because these were not cute, cuddly angels. These were not the angels that you think of, okay? This wasn't Castiel from Supernatural. These weren't normal people that just kind of show up, and it's not a big deal. These are the warriors of God that are showing up absolutely terrifying everybody. In fact, the common common expression when somebody sees an angel in Scripture, terror, every time. Nobody's like, oh, look, an angel. Did you see that? Like, nobody's like that. They're like, oh, my goodness. Because if you read the descriptions of it in Isaiah, of them in Isaiah and Ezekiel, you're like, hold the phone. That's what God's surrounded with because that was terrifying to me. So the, immediately these things show up, not to mention just the surprise factor. You're out there in the middle of the night and something just shows up out of nowhere. I'm thinking ghost, not angel, okay? That's the first thing I'm terrified But these guys, they don't have a context for it. These things just show up. These angels just pop out, and they were terrified for numerous, numerous reasons. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, which again is a common occurrence that the angels consistently have to tell the people they show up to. The angel says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. And the shepherd's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Great joy for all people. I mean, I can think of a couple different things that would bring me joy, but great joy for all people, I mean, that's a bit much. 
The angel continues, he says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, we read these verses and, and they lose their, their weightiness sometimes. Because we read them so often. I mean, this time of year, how many times do we read this? Because you guys read your Bibles all the time. I know it's so often that you read these verses. So you could probably recite these by heart because I know how faithful and how spiritual you guys are. But we read them all the time, and as we read them all the time, they kind of lose the significance of it. And sometimes we miss the cultural context of it. Because when this angel said Messiah, that had a real meaning for them. We hear Messiah, we think Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, Lion of Judah. That's what we think. That's where we go. We think Lamb that has been crucified for our sins. That's where we go. That was not the context that the shepherds are thinking when it comes to the Messiah. When they heard Messiah, they're thinking warrior. They're thinking, honestly, warrior king. That he's going to come in, and any second now, when the Messiah shows up, he's going to be born to royalty or military world, in the military world. He's going to show up. He's going to take his shirt off. A big M for Messiah is going to be across his chest, and he's going to save Israel from the oppression of the Roman Empire. That's what they're thinking when it comes to Messiah. They're not thinking the way that they're about to describe the way Jesus is going to be born into the world. This was anticipation since the days of Moses when Jesus was first prophesied about. When he said, one is going to come who's going to cover your transgressions. They had no idea what to expect when it came to Jesus. The only thing they knew is they needed a Messiah. They didn't know how he was going to show up. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They weren't sure. Now, they expected the Messiah to be born to some sort of royalty, because that's what was expected in the world. In the ancient world, in the ancient culture, it wasn't like today that you could be raised in poverty and then make a name for yourself and, and be successful and have a great family and provide for your family. In the ancient world, the insignificant people produced insignificant families and insignificant people. That's how it functioned. Royalty produced royalty. You know how it worked. When the son became of age and the father died, the son took over the throne until somebody killed him, and then another family took the throne. That's what they were expecting. That was the world that they were leaning into when they were hearing it. But listen to how Luke <clears throat> writes down and how the angel speaks about how the Savior of the world is going to enter the world. It's not going to be on a chariot of fire. It's not going to be in a big, drawn-out, dramatic thing. It's not going to be a dramatic entrance. You know, it's going to be something a lot different. This will be a sign to you, the angel said. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Lying in a manger. See, this was not how they expected the Messiah to arrive. I mean, Messiah meant king, so they knew he was going to be the king. And if he's going to be the king, he's not born into regular cloth. He's not wrapped in regular cloth. He's, he's wrapped in fine linen, maybe even silk. He's not supposed to show up and be inside of, a, a, of just regular cloth. And, and furthermore, he's certainly not going to be in a manger because that's where animals eat food out of. So, I mean, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, is not going to show up like that. The Messiah has got to show up a totally different way, and that's what they were expecting. And if you'll give me a second, I want to take a pit stop right here because I'd be irresponsible as your pastor if I didn't. But isn't it true that that's how we treat Jesus sometimes? 
that we have a specific way that he needs to show up. Jesus, I want you to show up in this way. I've got it all laid out. In fact, we have it in our prayer journals and in our our minds. And the way we pray, we say, Lord, I need this. And you lay it out, right? And then you tell them exactly how you would prefer him to go about it. And you say, okay, Jesus, I want you to show up, but but just this way, this way. And I'm really comfortable if you show up this way. But if you show up another way, like in a manger, I'm not there, not interested. That's not what I want. Now, you wouldn't say it like that, and I wouldn't say it like that, but isn't it true that sometimes we do that? That we have an expectation of how Jesus is going to show up. And if anything outside of that expectation happens, for some of us, sometimes, if he doesn't manifest himself or show up in our prayer life the way we expect, he doesn't show up in our family the way we expect, he doesn't show up in our marriage the way we expect, he doesn't show up at work the way we expect him to, when that doesn't happen and we didn't, we don't, he doesn't show up the way we planned on it, the way we expected him to, the way we've been praying for, we miss it. When we sit back and try to place him in a box and say, no, 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 Jesus, you can't come in a manger. You have to come in this place, in this way, in this way, and only this way, Jesus. When we do that, we run the risk of being just like, and I'm saying this out of love, the Pharisees. We have the same opportunity to not be like the shepherds who go look and see the Christ. We have an opportunity to be more like the Pharisees. How dare you show up like that, Jesus? How dare you show up so late? How can you do that? We have a tendency to ignore it when we particularly buy into the prosperity gospel first and foremost. And second of all, we run into the the issues of we kind of are God then, right? I mean, if I can just go into my prayer closet and tell Jesus how he's going to show up, and dictate the time and the hour and the days, and you're like, well, Brandon, I don't want to dictate the hour and the days. I just would like the mode to be dictated. I want him to show up with this way, in this manner, in my life. When we do that, God's no longer God. You are. You're dictating those things. And furthermore, if it actually happens that way, that's not faith, it's magic. That's what you just did. You did a spell and it happened the way you wanted it to. There's no faith involved. That's why Jesus doesn't show up the way you expect him to every single time. I believe that's also why he didn't show up the way that the Israelites were expecting him to. Over and over again in the Old Testament, they want God to show up a specific way and he says, no, my way is better. And as Jesus followers, we have to be careful of that cultural pressure to sit back and Tell Jesus how he needs to show up. Because when we do that, we limit what we will actually see. We'll miss the Savior in a manger because we're looking for a king or we're looking for a military leader or we're looking for a specific prayer answer. We'll miss the Savior in the manger. That one was free. That was extra. Hope you feel convicted. Love you. All right. But, I mean, so the angel continues. They continue the story. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heavens, and on earth peace to, whom, to those on whom his favor rests. Now, I imagine, this is just me. This is me projecting the emotions of the, the, uh, the shepherds. I imagine that that had to be a scary moment. 
Because they only saw one angel and they were terrified. You imagine a whole bunch of them just show up and then they're yelling because that's probably what it sounds like because they probably couldn't register the song at first. Probably like they just loud things show up and maybe they got trumpets and everything else. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, they're taking over. We're in trouble. It would be very scary, very, very scary. But the, angel, but the shepherds were told that night that peace is coming to earth. Now again, didn't feel like peace for them. In the same way, the Christmas season probably doesn't feel like peace for you, right? I mean, sure, maybe you like the music in the background and you like seeing the Christmas trees everywhere and you've got your things that are peaceful, right? But uh, you don't feel like there's much peace. Because, I mean, let's be honest, you still got shopping to do, right? Unless you're one of those really good people that ordered it way ahead of time. You still got shopping to do. Or you still got work parties to attend that you don't want to be at sometimes because that coworker is going to be there, right? You don't, want to, you don't want to hang out with them. But you've got to be there. Or you've still got winter sports going on and you just got to run your kids all over the county. God help you, right? Like, that's tough enough. Or you've got problems at work because everybody wants vacation around the holidays and somehow you've got to figure out how to manage that tension to still keep the business open but then also give people what they need and not necessarily what they want. Maybe, maybe your church is trying to move into its new church building by Christmas Eve and, and I'm not speaking from experience or anything and the county's being really slow so you want to strangle somebody but you're a Christian, you don't do those type of things. So maybe, maybe that's the tension you're walking through. I don't know, I've heard of somebody. There's family traditions that you have that you, at this time of year that you feel like you just need to be a part of that kind of suck out the life of you. Maybe you're hosting Christmas this year. Maybe you're traveling to somebody else's family for Christmas this year. Maybe your mother-in-law's coming into town and you ain't been looking forward to it. Maybe your father-in-law's coming into town and you ain't been looking forward to it. Sometimes Christmas time doesn't feel like peace. That it's oftentimes the most chaotic season in the world, right? Like, I mean, just the whole year, the whole calendar year, sometimes Christmas feels like there's no peace here. There ain't no peace here at all. It's exciting and it's fun, peaceful, not how I would describe Christmas. But we have to remember the peace that these angels are talking about is not the kind of peace that we think of. This isn't political peace. This isn't wartime peace in that, in that manner, that there's not going to be any type of wars again. It's not in the comfort peace, because a lot of times people read that and go, I'm supposed to have peace. Why is this hard? And it's like, they're not the same thing, friend. They're not the peace of the Lord is not the same thing as making your life easy, okay? None of that. This is a completely different peace that the angel is referring to. This is an inner spiritual peace, peace that transcends all understanding. And in fact, you've run into these people before. They get a bad doctor report. They get fired from the job. Something bad happens in their life. Maybe something they had absolutely no control over, and they just have a peace over their life, and you go, I don't know what's wrong with them. That's, I mean, in the truth, that's what you go. You go, I would be panicking. And they just have an inner peace. They just have an inner peace. I remember I met an a older gentleman at the last church that I had the privilege of working at up in, in Maryland, and he just had the peace of the Lord all the time. You could not shake him. And he was 80-something years old, bad doctor report, didn't shake him, didn't shake him at all. And I mean, he would have health issues, didn't shake him. 
He would have all sorts of things, never shook him. And I just remember sitting back thinking, and I would watch him Sunday. He was employed by the church. He would come in Sunday morning, and I knew his story, and I knew everything that was happening in the background. He was a janitor for the church. I knew it all. I knew that his family was, had the issues with his family, that he had issues taking care of his son. And he was in his, in his, almost in his 80s, was praising and worshiping the Lord on the front row louder than anybody else. And every time you talk to him, knowing his story, I would be expecting, you know, hey, this is the moment he's going to want to talk because he, he's going to, we need to do this. And every time, I'm blessed. I'm just, I'm just so honored. I'm so happy because the Lord rescued him from a pit. And when the Lord rescued him from a pit, he had a peace that transcended all understanding. He knew that maybe he didn't know how Jesus was going to show up, but he knew Jesus was in the manger. Somebody say amen. He didn't have an exact context of how Jesus was going to show up, but he just knew he was. And when Jesus would show up, he knew that it would be better than whatever he wanted. And the way that he was so humble and the way he humbled himself before the Lord blew my mind. On the video, you would see him in the front row raising his hands and worshiping. And then on the week, you would see him scrubbing toilets in the church. And when you would ask him, how are you doing, my friend? And he would just say, I'm blessed. You know people like this. You've had people like this where they have that inner peace, that inner peace that transcends all understanding. But the question obviously becomes, hey, what does that mean? How do we, how do we, how do we get the peace of the Lord? How does that happen? Well, if we go back to what the, uh, to what the angel said, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So if you want peace in this world, you need to be favored by God. Okay? It's the end of the sermon. Hope you have a good day. Wrap it up right there. No. Come on. We hear that and we go, great, Brandon. What does that mean? What do I do, what do, I do next? What do you mean favored by the Lord? How do I know if I'm favored by the Lord? How do I become highly favored of the Lord? What does that even mean? Is it, is it perfect church attendance? Well, I sure hope not, because that's only 52 Sundays a year, and you need to be connected with God far more than 52 times out of 365. Is it giving 10% to the church? No, that's not it either. I mean, I certainly hope not, because God says be generous with your life, not only with your money. If you could buy your way into heaven, we'd all put the down payment and call it good, right, if we're just honest. If we could just spend more time in your Bibles, right? Like, hold on, Brandon, is it, is it a time thing? Can I, can I log a timesheet, and then God marks me into the favored category? Like, can I log it every day and God puts me into the favorite category? Because I read through numbers today, Brandon, and it was hard. Okay, I read through Leviticus, those, and, and it was hard. That should be worth double points, Lord, right? Is it reading time in our Bible? Is it read because I read more spiritual books, right? I read those self-help spiritual books, Pastor Brandon. I do, I do all the biblical reading, then I have extra biblical reading. It's amazing, right? Is that what it is? Do I have to be kind and accepting to everybody, all the time, is that what it is? Do I have to be mean to the sinners? Is that the key? Do I have to like find those sinners and be like, stop it? Is that how, how do I get into, how do I become highly favored, Lord, right? I mean, that's what we sit back and ask ourselves the question all of the time. Luckily for us, Paul actually makes the connection for us. He makes a connection because the church in Corinth is wondering the same thing. 
And he's encouraging the church in Corinth that's going through some really crazy stuff. They're, they're dealing with all sorts of impurities and all sorts of character issues all up in this church. And they were Gentiles and all that Gentile stuff carried over and pagan worship carried over into worshiping Jesus. So Paul has gone in multiple times. This is in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So this is Paul's third time going in. And when Paul goes in the third time, he's just like laying it all out for him. He's reminding them of stuff they should already know, but that's okay because they are trying to figure it out like we all are. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. He's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting a prophetic word from Isaiah reminding the church in Corinth, hey, those of you that are Jews, you've heard this verse before. You know something about the day of salvation and that it's coming, right? You guys recognize that this is happening and coming. And don't forget, I remembered you then because I tell you, Paul says, now is the time of God's favor. There's our word. Now is the day of salvation. So Paul says that if you're going to be favored of the Lord, you have to follow Jesus. That when you receive salvation, you've received favor from God. When we accept Jesus into our life, commit ourselves to following him and and letting him have the reign of our life, placing him as Lord of our life instead of something else, Paul says that's how you become favored of God. So then the implication, the implication then is that true peace is found only in Jesus. I mean, if we play that out to its, to its finality, the true peace is only found in Jesus. Peace that transcends all understanding only found in Jesus. And you go, Brandon, that is such a churchy answer. Well, welcome to church. I'm glad you joined us. <laughs> because it's the truth. Like, this is the thing I wish I could figure out a way to, to, to just impart on you if, if you struggle grasping this. You're not going to find peace anywhere else in this world. In fact, culture produces counterfeit and gives you counterfeit peace. Counterfeit peace that pales in comparison to the peace that Christ gives us when we begin to follow him. Cultural peace tells you just be more successful and then you'll have peace. Just move up the promotion ladder and then you'll have peace. That's all you've got to do. And that's only going to last for a little bit of time. Or culture's going to tell you, hey, make as many of those dollar signs as you can because, hey, that's where peace is found, right? When you don't have any financial strain, right? Just, just make a lot of money and then there's, no, there's peace in your life. That's not how you get peace. I have friends that have a lot of money and they do not have peace. Or you sit back and you go, once I have my family, I need to find me a good wife or a good husband, have kids, and then I'll have peace. First of all, you're not going to have peace with your kids, okay? That's just not going to happen. Don't fool yourself, okay? They, they're amazing, but peace is not a way I would describe my house most of the time. But it's not contingent on somebody else coming into your life. Culture tells you that too, that you've got to have a spouse to have peace. I certainly hope that's not the case because that means that Christ is not enough. We all right? Because if, if, if your peace is only found in your spouse, then guess what that means? Jesus isn't enough for you. You need a little extra on Jesus. 
I need a little husband on Jesus. I need a little wife on Jesus. He's not enough to give me peace. I need something else to give me peace. And so many of us buy into the cultural lie that other things can provide us peace. And they can't. They simply can't. It's fake peace. It's not real. It lasts for a small amount of time. It's a flash in the pan. And sometimes that flash in the pan is two years. Sometimes that flash in the pan is 10 years. But it will eventually run out. Cultural peace is only achievable through your work, which is totally counter to what the gospel teaches. That peace is available through his work and your faith, not the other way around. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are a Christian, a Jesus follower, and you don't have that peace, because I know some of you are sitting here going, okay, Brandon, I'm already there. I've already accepted Christ, but I don't have peace, right? You're like, I'm checking the box of favor. Where's my peace? I would like my peace now. If you can pass it out after service, that would be really nice, right? That's what we're thinking. We're thinking like, okay, I don't have, I don't have peace. And I'm going to tell you and challenge you and maybe stretch a little bit this morning that maybe you're looking in the wrong place for your peace. Maybe you're looking in the wrong place. Maybe you're trying to put it on your spouse. Maybe you're trying to put it on your success. Maybe you're trying to put it on your money. Maybe you're trying to even put it on your kids. Maybe you're trying to find peace in so many of the areas that's not meant to produce it long term. And we're looking to the world to provide that kind of peace. When instead, we have to look to Jesus. So how do we do it? And I think the angels, if we jump back to the Christmas story, the angels and the shepherds demonstrated for us. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And this is the part I think where Luke kind of leans into his interview with Mary. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Notice that in the scriptures, the the shepherds are praising prior to the resurrection. Salvation hadn't been provided, and the angels or the shepherds are rejoicing. They didn't understand what the Messiah meant, but they are glorifying and praising God. What if the reason, and if you'll give me a second, I I understand the implications of this question, but I think we would be responsible to not wrestle it to the ground. What if the reason we're not experiencing peace on earth is because we're not praising on earth? Because notice the shepherds immediately return and they're glorifying and praising God. And it seems to be that every time I run into a situation that I don't have peace, somehow praise seems to bring me to a place of peace. But so often we go to things of this world. 
What if, and I understand, I understand, again, I understand the implications of this question. I understand how frustrating it could be to have somebody question your faith or just ask these type of questions. So please give me the grace. But what if you're not, you're just going through the motions of faith? What if you're just saying your prayers and they're hollow? What if you're not truly praising God and worshiping God every step of the way? What if the, the music that you're listening to, you're not worshiping God in the music, it's just kind of you know, drowning out in the background? What if when you're, you have all these resources that the Lord has given you, you're not praising God with the resources, you're not worshiping Him with the resources? You're keeping them selfishly for yourself. What if when we sit down in our prayer time, I'm not praising God, it's just a whining session? Sorry. But sometimes we sit down and we don't spend any time praising him, right? And we sit down and we just say, Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need, Lord, I need. And all we do is get our anxiety to the nth degree. And then we go out and say, Lord, I have no peace. Because we're not acknowledging the Savior of the world. We're not acknowledging that the Creator has everything in the palm of his hand. What if we're not glorifying and praising God in our families and at work? What if the key to peace on earth, what if it starts with praise on earth? What if it starts with worship? What if you have no peace because you have no praise? You just expect the peace to fall on you, but you're not connecting and praising God at all. And I understand the question and how frustrating it can be, and I understand how much of a stretch and a challenge it is, and I, and I also understand none of us are going to unpack that in this space. So we're going to go home and think about it and pray about it and see if we are truly doing that. But this time of year, it's so easy to breeze right by the praise, but demand the peace. Breeze right by baby Jesus in a manger. I love baby Jesus in a manger, right? I want to put my nativity scene out. I want to get shopping done. I want to get, I want to get that bonus at work so I can buy gifts. I want to get ready for the vacation after Christmas. Like, I got all these things I want to do. And we blow right by praise and then say, God, where's my peace? And again, we place ourselves in a position where maybe, just maybe, we don't have peace because we have no praise. And as the lyrics in our hymn teach us today, oh come, let us adore him. Notice it doesn't say, oh come, let us adore money. Oh come, let us adore my, uh, my own image. Oh come, let us adore my spouse. Oh come, let us adore my kids. Oh, come, let us adore whatever you want to put in there. Notice that's not in there. Notice the shepherds aren't praising any of that. It's, oh, come, let us adore him, Christ, the Lord. So when you don't have peace in the Christmas season, when you don't have peace, I challenge you to praise. Even when you don't have peace, Worship, because that's an act of faith before you have evidence of faith.
before you have evidence that he's going to move. You are trusting, just like my friend at the church. He was trusting God to move. And he had praise all the time. And that's what informed his peace, was he was constantly praising the Lord. So as we close service today, we're going to close with the song, The Blessing. And for those of you that don't know the background for this song, it's inspired directly from the Scriptures. And as it's inspired directly from the Scriptures, it's particularly the chorus section is, is uh, made pulled from Psalm 67. And it reads this, May the peoples praise you, God. May the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing your joy for the rule of the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the people praise you. The song, the blessing, it's a call to praise the Lord. And I understand. We come sometimes in here and we, we have really, you know, I give re, you really practical messages and I, we do all those things. I give you real good handles on stuff sometimes. But can I be honest? There's times, especially in this season, when we just need to praise. There's times when we just need to sit in the spirit of the Lord. There's times when there's not a cool pithy saying and there's nothing I can do for you because the scriptures and the Lord has already spoken into your life. And I think, and the way we're going to end this service is we're going to end it by singing the blessing together. And as we're singing it, I want you, if you're comfortable, to pour out that praise that's in your heart. Because I bet that if we go around this room, this room is filled with stories that are worthy of praising God. I know some of them. I know some of those stories. In fact, if it was culturally appropriate, some of the stories, we should be running up and down the aisles, right? If you think back to where God took you from to where you are now. So let's not let this season get so busy we forget to praise. Let's not let everything get so busy that we don't come as faithful to adore him. Because that's why we're here. That's why the season exists. So as we sing this next song, position your heart to praise. Don't worry about anything else. Don't think about the week. Don't even think about some of the stuff that I talked about in the message. Think about only praising the Lord because your peace can start right now. So let's stand and praise him.